0: Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Dr. Cynthia Teniente Madsen. Dr. Madsen has been the president at Texas A&M University in San Antonio since 2015 and will soon be joining San Jose State University as their president next month in January 2023. She's a San Antonio native with over 30 years of experience in higher education in Alaska, California, and Texas. Dr. Teniente Matson has been recognized worldwide and nationally with for her leadership and service. Bienvenida a este episodio, Dr. Matson. Gracias. Uh, first of all, congratulations on, on the new job. Uh, that's a big move, I guess, from Texas to California. How are you? How are the plans go, coming along?
1: Well, I think uh, you may know Elena that I was in the California State University system before mm-hmm. I came to Texas. So I, I, although I am a Texas native, I'm, my moving plans are a little bit more uh, focused now because I, I know what I'm moving to, where I'm moving to. Right. My new um, opportunity comes with a residence. So it helps uh, when I came here from California. I didn't have a place to live, mm-hmm. and I moved You know everything I owned. Right. So this time I can be a little bit more thoughtful about how I'm going to be going uh, to, to my new role. Right, I'm right. excited about it.
0: Yes, and California, it's, it's, it's nice. New things and uh, new opportunities there. Uh, Dr. Mudson, talk to us a little bit about your journey into higher education.
1: So, like many of your listeners, probably, I was a first gen student. And as you indicated, I moved, I was born in San Antonio, Texas. My grandparents on both sides of my family migrated to the United States from Mexico. Well, both of my parents were born here in San Antonio. My sister and I were born here in San Antonio. But when I, when um, as as my parents were making their journey, I think they came to understand at some point that to have a better life, they needed to leave their community. And uh, they moved us, like many Latino families, uh, followed another family member who had gone ahead to California. And we moved to California when I was a small child, eight years old, and then uh, my father, who was not able to complete a college degree, did uh, complete some credentialing to be a tradesman, a trades and crafts worker, mm-hmm. and landed a job in Alaska. So that's what took us to Alaska when I was uh, 12. So we lived in California for a few years, moved to Alaska, my mom, me, and my sister. So when I ended up in college, quite frankly, um, we were living out on the Aleutian chain in a place called Naval Air Station Adak, Alaska. Mm-hmm. And the thought of college, my parents wanted me to be close by, and close by in Alaska terms, when you're living on an island, was 1,200 miles away. So it still required a plane ride uh, to get there, and wasn't the kind of visit that you could make every weekend to to sort of go home. So my journey included uh, this sort of process of self discovery at the University of Alaska, uh, where I started as an undergraduate as a freshman, and and so w- upon finishing. College, mm-hmm. you know, by my life, like many students, you sort of um, root where you're nested, right? Right, and so we stayed in Alaska. Um, I got married in Alaska. I had my children in Alaska, and there were some monumental career movements that caused me to ask myself whether I wanted to stay in Alaska for the rest of my career because I was a young professional in that space. Mm -hmm. And that's really how I ended up back in California after 15 years in the University of Alaska system where I've been working. My mentor and and person, critical sponsor, uh, retired, stepped away as was appropriate, it was time for him to retire. Mm -hmm. And I had to, I, I wasn't, I as a young professional wasn't really ready for that. And so it really caused me to think about what are my values, what's important to me if I'm thinking about new opportunities. Uh, And some of the things that were really important to me were diversity. Mm -hmm. And I wanted my children to learn how to speak Spanish. And I already had two boys. Um, My husband and I have two boys. Mm -hmm. And those were some of the decision-making factors. So I was recruited to California State University at Fresno, And when I went to visit the campus and go through the interview as a, I was a vice president there, the part of my process and really my list was um, opportunities for my children, um, bilingual schooling for my, for my youngest son, Mm -hmm. um, some sports things that my older son was into. And that really helped drive the goal making with clarity about what was important for me in my life. And so that journey, like many people, uh, was dictated by what I wanted for my children and what was best for them. So my husband and I, when we moved, um, I began focusing – my my boss at the time, my new boss when I was at Cal State at Fresno, I started on March 29th mm-hmm. because Cesar Chavez was a holiday in California and I didn't want to start on April Fool's Day. <laughs> so it – so I start – I tell you this because – so I started at the end of March. And my first performance review was in June. Mm -hmm. So I'd been there a few months. And my boss put in my performance review, must earn doctorate. And it stayed in my review until the time that I started the doctoral program. And that was part of the journey that really brought me to this presidency. in having someone really push me in that direction, first of all, because I was in a, I had a terminal degree. I had an MBA. I was a CFO. Those, those two things aligned, it didn't require a doctorate. So I was deliriously happy in that role, quite frankly. But those shoulder taps about must-earn doctorate um, stayed there, and I didn't start my doctorate until my youngest son was a ninth grader and my oldest son was already in college, that I felt that I had the capacity to actually take on something like that and have a very demanding job and complete, complete a degree offering, complete that uh, doctorate. And that really, then the shoulder tap was there's, there's bigger things in store, but you can't get there without this. Because I had already been in other administrative roles and, like I said, was a vice president. So that journey really landed me back here at A&M San Antonio where I am today.
0: Thank you for sharing the journey that included you thinking about um, what was best for you, but for your family too. I think um, a lot of us or a lot of uh, young uh, leaders think that they have to choose one or over the other um, or that it's not possible or that, you know, whatever the case might be. But I think um, specifically, and, and, and maybe I'm thinking about myself uh, my own journey included making decisions that were good for my family as well, and, um, and you don't hear that often, so I really appreciate you talking to us about, you know, thinking about where you were going to be with your family, what was best for your family and your, your children. Um, we, we need to hear more of that, I think.
1: Well, it does also, you know, I, I say to young professionals, it's always about forced choices or forced trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some super women, some super Latinas that can do it all. Mm -hmm. I think it really depends, though, on the kind of life that you want to live and what's important to you. And we can't, I often say to people, I don't pretend to walk in someone else's shoes. So I don't know what's going on in your life or what's important to you or why it's important to you. And so I can't pretend to understand that for someone else, and they shouldn't pretend to understand that for me. And those are, are, I think, critical value statements that we have to hold true to ourselves as Latinas, as women of color, mm-hmm. as women in higher ed and in administration, because we always have to be pushing for that next level degree, publication, research, whatever it may be that puts us in this in the academy mm-hmm. um, is still only about so much time in how you can get everything done. So having those values, are, I think, are really important in how you fill up your your space, your the people you're surrounding yourself with, and then giving yourself permission to let go of the things that you can't do. Right. Because we cannot do everything Absolutely. all the time. <laughs> Maybe some people can. If you have lots of help, I couldn't.
0: Right. No, <laughs> no.
1: Um,
0: you have been able to accomplish many things here at A&M San Antonio a growing university located in the south side of San Antonio. Some of the most notable to me as a new faculty member at this institution is the designation as an HSI, the development of the May Center for Experiential Learning and Community Engagement, and establishing the first Commission on Equity. I know we can dedicate an episode to (laughs) each of these accomplishments, um, but... Can you tell us a little bit about how these three areas speak to our institution and the students that we serve?
1: So this is a really interesting question, Elena, and I've been thinking back about how long I've been here. And when I came to a and San Antonio from California, I came back to the very same neighborhood that my parents worked so hard to get out of. And one of the things that a, a colleague told me to do on, on your first day before you go to work Drive by your childhood home and stop and park the car and write down every memory that you can think of. Mm -hmm. Write down reflections, in essence. And that process of discovery really helped me to understand how much time has gone by that the neighborhood hasn't really changed. Mm -hmm. Now, what I remember about the neighborhood is a place filled with family and love and um, closeness with my grandparents and and my tias and theos that lived in that street on that block, because it was a traditional. You know, my grandmother lived in one spot, and my my um, tias lived right next door. So it was this, you know, sort of sequential, sequential area. But as I came into the work to the to your questions, I came to better understand it. It didn't happen immediately. It was over time. That I really understood the income gaps, the the poverty levels, the disparity in in um, degree attainment, the de- the disparity in health. That if you live on the south side, you you are you may be ten years shorter life than if you lived on the north side, which is really twenty miles north, mm-hmm. uh, at best. So all of these things, then beginning to understand what Senator Manlow's vision was to even build a campus here in this historically underrepresented community really led me to the concepts around equity. And really then understanding very personally, because our campus zip code is 78224, that was also the zip code for my childhood home. It is also a, a zip code that is wrapped in disparities. So it was very personally motivating now to understand what others had experienced and the fact that I have a different life because my parents were able to move out and break into the middle class. And because of that, I was able to go to college and earn multiple degrees and come back and lead in this community. So when I thought about what does all of that mean, for me, the big aha moment was around equity, network affluence, um, recognizing and celebrating being a predominantly Hispanic community, and how our cultural assets and cultural capital can build upon our excellence. So how do we provide the things that we don't have, which I would say, or maybe, you know, nothing is homogenous, but how do we point to the things that we see as disparities? And some of that, for me, I could back into, okay, that's network affluence. How do we tackle that? Mm -hmm. Academic readiness. How do we tackle some of that? Um, Under-resourced Uh, uh, neighborhood schools Mm -hmm. how do we tackle that Uh, transitory populations how do you tackle that and those are the things that really frame my lens around our geography leveraging our geography and then leveraging the A&M system excellence because when you come to A&M San Antonio and even then seven years ago when you turned off the 410 or off San and got to campus there is no expense that has been spared there is you know first class infrastructure in our roadways, in our sidewalks, in our lighting, then to how our buildings are designed, uh, the cultural capital that we that took in place uh, that was put in, set in motion mm-hmm. with the uh, architectural distinction from the missions. All of those things are symbols of how the buildings speak to people mm-hmm. and how they represent our community before you ever open your mouth or have an engagement with a person. Mm-hmm. And to me, all of those things reflect being a predominantly Hispanic institution, being a place where we expect excellence, but we're wrapping you in an excellent environment. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean everything is perfect, but it does mean when you come here, the expectations that are placed upon you feel different, Mm -hmm. act different, behave different. So yes, we still meet students who need, obviously, wraparound support services or need funding for, for food, for housing stability, uh, vehicle transportation, all of those things, but it helps us to better understand that. And that's the initiatives that, that you were referring to as I thought of leveraging our geography and how do we take that with the most affirmative lens possible. The second part of the achievements are then also thinking about the fact that we're in, here we are in 2022, soon to be 2023. Building a brand new campus from the ground up with A&M system excellence that just happens to be located in a historically underrepresented minority community. So how do we leverage those assets and those strengths? And those are all of the new academic programs that we've been building, hiring people like yourself, adjusting our curriculum, the new health initiatives, which I really see as one of my largest accomplishments here, in bringing that, that public health venue, the new university hospital, the new partnership with AM Health Science Center, and the partnership with University Health to have AM San Antonio be a guided pathway for a medical degree, for a health professional career, a professional track in general, law school, uh, the 11 month MBA, all of these things that we're putting in place are in addition to what we do to our core as a university to point to excellence. This is the the gateway to the South Side. It is the gateway to the new developments that are occurring around us, and we need to lean into that geography and that excellence. And that's how I've thought about strategic planning, strategic vision, and lining up resources to move that needle in that direction, always embracing the predominantly Hispanic institution that we are
0: so one of the first things that I noticed, and like you're talking about the architecture, and and actually I've had a few guests that have come right from outside the university to the university, and the first thing they comment on is the architecture, and like uh, seeing the you know local art all over, and my mom actually came um, when I first um, sort of did a campus visit before I, I came, and she also was like, Surprise, right? but yeah. So this health initiative. So thank you for starting that. We'll we'll carry those on. Yes, it will. <laughs> and and especially thinking about um, you know Latino health and um, and preparing our students right to be um, not only uh, bilingual and and, and and you know understanding our community um, and language access right, uh, but also building onto their already, you know, skills as bicultural um, students or um, bilingual, et cetera, um, to really prepare them to serve our own communities here in the south side of San Antonio.
1: I think we know, uh, Elena, that, and you know this better than I do, that when you're supporting a first-generation student, they're going back and educating their whole family, and they are changing lives. They're seeding a culture of opportunity. I often say talent is universal, opportunity is not. And what Texas A&M does is create opportunity. Take our talent and create opportunity. And we have to not lose sight of being visible symbols of that in our community, in our schools. And that's why I think it's so important that all of the faculty recognize and remember that you are a visible role model just by showing up. You don't have to say anything. People look to you and know how can I get there? Uh,
0: Dr. Matson? you are one of a very small number of Latina leaders in higher education and even a smaller number of Latina university presidents. Can you talk to us about this journey? I, I know it, it has to be a, a, a point of pride, but also you've had to navigate maybe other things that maybe uh, men haven't had to. Right.
1: So one of the, a couple of things there, best I can tell, and I'm sure there's data about this somewhere, there's, you know, maybe six, seven, eight Latinas in public higher education. So I'm talking about the four-year public space, not the whole universe of, of private institutions and two-year institutions, but just publics because we operate differently under different sets of regulating bodies and, and such. So I would say to you, for me, coming into this role from a technical position, having been a vice president and a CFO for 15 years, there is some level setting because you can either do the work or you can't when you're a CFO. When you come into the presidency, it's different. It is about leadership, it is about um, inspiring others. It is about always having the bigger picture in mind. So leading here has really uh, opened my mind to clearly understanding that institutions last, you know, hundreds of years, decades, you know, pushing into a hundred years, and the decisions that we make and the impact that we have can take decades to come to fruition when we plant these seeds um, and to know the impact to our communities can be a little bit faster. It is a long fuse. So for Latinas in particular, I think uh, sometimes we get subject to criticism or critique if we're moving too fast. When there's not very many of us, sometimes you feel like you have to move fast to, to make change. Um, those are some of the areas where I have seen, not only f- in myself, but for others. I think for me here in San Antonio, there have been a lot of opportunities because there's other Latina or Latino leaders in San Antonio, which is not necessarily the case when you're in other cities or e- even large communities. You could be the only one. And even in Texas here right now, I'm the only Latina president of the public. The public four-year institutions. Um, so I think you just have to be thoughtful and mindful about how you approach your work with the, for me, with a lens towards equity and leading from the front mm-hmm. and ensuring that I'm a visible role model to my values and my authenticity, but most importantly to students. And I tell people I wake up in the morning and I go to bed at night thinking about students. And that does help shape how you make decisions and how you can ensure long-term sustainability for the institution and for yourself as a leader. Right. And I like how you mentioned, you've
0: mentioned this several times, um, being Cognizant or following our values, right? Putting our values at the center, um, it's critical in the way that we carry out our work, especially in a position like yours as a leader of a university.
1: I think too, Elena, the higher up you go in the organization, whether it's a department chair or a dean or a associate uh, vice provost and and up, you also have to be politically savvy. I mean, you have to be conscientious about how you bring people along in the decision-making. And if you have credibility and trust and maybe to respect, then even when you make a decision people don't always agree with, if you followed a process and you're willing to share how and why you made that decision or what were the factors that influenced you, then you might find common ground or at least agree to disagree without thinking that someone is behaving with malice or ill intent. And I think that is a challenge for all leaders not just Latinas, but it can be even more of a challenge for Latinas or any community of color, really, if you don't have that, some common ground to find, or you you sometimes get singled out because of race, gender, ethnicity, that we just have to know these things conscientiously and navigate them as forward as we can to understand the political spectrum. And I do think that's where some people, fall short, not thinking about the political spectrum. And how you manage that is to, first of all, be aware of it, and then ask others around you to help make sure you're thinking about all of the voices, who's going to disagree and why are they going to disagree, or who's going to be the influencer, uh, and what are the naysayers and what are the the people that, that are going to support this going to say, just so that you have the full range of understanding so that you can make the best decision possible for the institution. That's ultimately the role of the president and the CEO. Make the best decision possible for the institution. We're here to lead. We're not royalty. Uh, we don't have subjects. Uh, we are responsible for students and student their their success. Their and fac- and the conditions of faculty and staff, and uh, that is a significant burden. So you always have to remember where that sits in your decision-making criteria and how you can be authentic and true to what you're supposed to be doing for the institution.
0: Um, How would you describe, um, and and I know you've mentioned this already a little bit, but how would you describe your leadership and do you have any more advice for Latina university leaders, for someone like me that maybe in the future would um, like to be in a senior leadership position?
1: Well, so for career advice, I would say this. Uh, first of all, it's really important to have a plan, whatever that plan looks like for your life. I try to think about it in five-year increments. Some people do three years. Some people do one year. I do think about my goals every year. I tend to do it on my birthday, so that I can measure. You know, where where am I here for, from where I was there? I'll jot jot some things down so I can come back to it. But I think for all of us, we need to have goals on what it is we're trying to accomplish in our life because time only moves in one direction. And as soon as you lose sight of that, you can't get it back or you might misstep an opportunity. So if you have a plan, then you have more clarity about what it is that you want out of your career or or your life, as we were talking about earlier, that I knew I wanted a doctorate, but I also knew I couldn't do it during that time frame. So I was able to set myself up for Positivity instead of I I just can't get it done. Um, You know, other things were more important for me at at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think knowing that helps a lot. Understanding your own personal priorities and as they fit within your career plan. If you're a young mother or you're taking care of elders or you have uh, something in your life that prevents you from going 200 miles an hour, you got to give yourself some grace for that. And I think it comes back to having a plan. I also think when you have a plan, then in whatever situation you're in. You can ask for what you need to be successful. Now, that doesn't mean the world centers around you or me in our discussions, but it means if I need professional development to be a better fill in the blank, then you can ask for that. Or you can ask, may I have opportunities that will help me build that skill right there? That's what I'm trying to get at. What can I do? How can I get there? Can I get mentorship that helps me with that? Can I get a coach that helps me learn this new skill in particular? And then that's skill development. That's just coaching. Mentors can help you navigate the politics or the situation, and sponsors are the ones talking about you when you're not in the room, moving your name, moving your agenda. Again, you can't really, in my view, it's very difficult to do that effectively if you don't have a plan from where you're trying to get. So those are the the three pretty significant things that I would say as advice. The other thing I I say to people and I've said it even more now, is you have to be healthy, whatever that means to you. So I'm not talking about, you know, avoid having cancer. Of course, we all want that. I mean, um, take care of yourself, take care of your, whatever your roles and responsibilities are, how you balance all that does require some self-care. But if you know it, you can help yourself be healthy instead of maybe being overcommitted. We all go through these stages of life, right, when you might be overcommitted if you have. Children, pets, you know, an aunt, something you've adopted, someone you've adopted that you're taking care of, and then we get overwhelmed. Right. I, I, we all get that, but you have to know when that flip is, uh, when to flip that switch, so that we can stay healthy. Mm-hmm. And for me, being healthy really does mean being physically fit, eating well. I don't do too well on sleep. I, I wish I could sleep better than what I actually do, but I'm intentional now about trying to be fit. And I know that when I'm not, it actually really impacts how I think about my work and how I do my work. And so if I understand my work is about creating better spaces for students, then I can't afford to be unhealthy and take my eye off of that prize. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle that I've tried to put into something positive to help keep me motivated.
0: As you reflect on the last seven years as university president, what do you feel has been your
1: legacy? Well, I will tell you what I'm most proud of, and that is our students. Mm-hmm. I am, uh, I'm so happy that we were able to have downward expansion. When I came here, we were an upper division only institution and my charge from the board and the regents was to secure funding to do downward expansion, which we did in our first year. So we welcomed freshmen, that was very impactful. We well, I started the president's leadership class, and I teach in the president's leadership class when I can. That's very impactful. It gives me a very close relationship with a certain number of students who are in the PLC. They call we call them PLCers. I I'm close to what they're doing and how they're doing, and I stay connected with them. So those things are impactful, and I think um, have changed lives. And so that that means a lot to me. And then the the development and this building of these new programs opening gateways for so many other students. But what I hear more, the most, is something that you said, and that is just being visible, Mm -hmm. Uh, being visible for for students. How many students have reached out to me, and people in the community, but really students, while they're sad to see me leave, they're enormously proud, and I tell them we will always be connected. And that gives me a sense of satisfaction and elation that, it mattered. Right. And it, it mattered to more than what I talked about and what I tried to lead actually touched some people.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of people. Dr. Matson, uh, gracias por esta conversación.
1: Thank you. Gracias también.
0: A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir esta podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.